Welcome to the sermon podcast from Compass Church. In this message from July 11th, 2021, Pastor Craig Kidder preaches on the pinnacle of the series, What is the Bible? Jesus and His Cross. Here we see that the heart of Christianity is the message of substitution, one innocent man laying down his life for the guilty, and we see that in encountering Jesus, we are forced to see who or what we place our trust in. For more information, check out compasscfc.com. Well, good morning, friends. You can have a seat. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. When life goes off the rails, who or what do we trust to get said life back on the rails? So when we're doing things right, when we're working hard, we're being productive, we lose our job. When we're, let's say you're a full-time student, full-time student, and, you know, like my experience in college, had to work way through college. You got some scholarships, you're working hard, you're doing your best, and you got to maintain grades to keep those scholarships. You got two part-time jobs. Don't know if you know this. It's not super fun working at Chipotle in the middle of a global pandemic, all right? It's already hard and hot cooking carne asadas. You've got a mask on. People yell at you. You know, like, I mean, the customers are grumpy, your coworkers are grumpy, it's hard. You get home at night, you're like, oh, I can finally relax. And then you get that calendar alert, you've got a book review due tomorrow. Remember, you're working really hard, you're maintaining your scholarships. This is the first you've heard of this book review since you put it in your calendar. So you do what, how I got through college. You skim the book, you look up Amazon reviews, you somehow squeeze out two pages of a book review. It's all right. It's pretty decent. There's a few very, very, but, you know, it's all right. But then there's that question. Percentage of book read. <laughs> Things are starting to go off the rails. You could lose your scholarships. Your grades are already on the edge. You're working really hard. You're trying to do it right. What do you trust to get out of that situation? You trust... Bending the truth a little bit, or do you just trust telling the truth? You haven't been feeling well for the past couple weeks. You finally get an appointment with your primary care physician for some whatever reason. It takes three months. Uh, you finally get in there. A couple weeks go by. You get the phone call. It's cancer. You've been flossing. You've been exercising. You recycle, and you still got cancer. What do you do? Things are starting to go off the rails. What do you trust to get them back on the rails? What if you have a hard relationship with your parents? They're really critical. They don't get you at all. They don't get you at all. They're really critical. But thank goodness you have your spouse, right? Whew. They understand you. They like you. They approve of you. And if you lost that approval, you don't know what you'd do. And that good relationship Peter's on codependency, and now your spouse is mad at you. In all these situations, when we're doing right and there's temptation, when just life happens to us and comes at us, or when relationships go awry, in those moments, we're presented with a question, what or who do we trust to get life back on the rails when it goes off the rails? This morning, we're continuing our series through the Bible. 
And this morning, if you're joining us for the first time, you came in where we are at the peak of this mountain. After this, it's all gas, no brakes. We are just downhill, all right? But this week, we are at the mountaintop, the center of the Christian faith, Jesus and his cross. And when we encounter the cross of Jesus, when we encounter what Jesus is doing on a cross, what happens is we get things exposed. What we trust in bubbles up to the surface. And this morning, we get to see Jesus' heart, what he's trying to do, what, how he is offering himself on a cross. And we see these four responses from the people present. Four responses. Because what's happening is when people are encountering Jesus, things bubble up to the surface. So we're going to see these four responses And the question for us is, how do we respond? How do we respond when we're encountered with Jesus and his cross? So in just a minute, we're going to read our passage. But before we do that, we've got some hand motions. Ah, the joy is bubbling up. I feel it. I feel it. You thought you could get away this morning, but we're doing it. All right, so if you could, please stand with me. we We skipped a week. My mind was a little rusty, but... First service helped us. So you guys ready? You feel good? All right. Here we go. Isaac, thank you. All right. Here we go. Ready? Creation, fall, Abraham, Exodus, Torah, David, prophets, Jesus and his kingdom, Jesus and his cross, church, Paul, revelation. All right, guys, give yourselves a hand. Well done. Well, well done. How we respond to Jesus reveals who or what we trust. How we respond to Jesus reveals who or what we trust. When life goes off the rails, what makes everything okay? The passage we're about to look at, we encounter people. Everybody involved is experiencing life going off the rails. We had this Messiah And a week earlier, everybody loves this dude. Now, he's under arrest. That is not okay if we're trying to lead a revolution. Probably because this guy isn't the Messiah. That's what some folks say. So things are going off the rail for Jesus and the people involved. And when things go off the rails, what we trust bubbles to the surface. So you're going to see four characters. You're going to see the religious leaders. What do they trust? How do they respond to this situation? You're going to see the crowds. What's their response? What are they trusting in? What did they put their hope in? You're going to see Pilate's wife. What was she trusting? What what was her hope in? You're also going to see Pilate. All right, El Jefe. What was he trying to do? But there's also a plus one in this story. There are these four characters, and there's a character in the background called Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was basically like the Robin Hood of his day. Matthew is about to tell us he was a notorious criminal, okay? Now, notorious really depends on who you ask, right? He can be notorious for Rome. He's a real pain. Or he's notorious for the people he's trying to liberate. Like, yeah, that's our guy. 
The other gospels tell us that this character Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Rome was trying to squash Israel and Barabbas said, uh-uh, no more. Let's rise up. All right. And when you rise up against a, a giant superpower, you tend to run into the brick wall of reality. So he gets arrested and he's condemned to death. It's early in the morning. Jesus had been arrested the night before. And so Pilate presents the crowds with two options. Who would you like set free? Barabbas or Jesus? And in this story, we experience the heart of the Christian faith, the very center. It's this idea of substitution. And when we experience that, things bubble to the surface. When we encounter Jesus, it reveals who or what we trust in. Do we trust ourselves? Do we trust just what people tell us? Do we trust Jesus? Do we trust our finances, our own wisdom? Do we trust our ability to get things done? Who or what do we trust? And there's an invitation. There's an invitation to trust the one who truly is trustworthy. So Matthew 27, that's where we're going to be. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 11. Matthew chapter 27 is where we're going to be, starting in verse 11. All right. And if you could, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew 27, verse 11. Jesus has just been arrested. And we know from the other Gospels, he gets bounced around because this is like a kangaroo court. It's illegal. It's unjust. And so we see how he responds. Here's what's happening. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew, he knew, it was out of selfish, selfish interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. So while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But when the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed, Pilate goes back. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who's called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered. Not some, not the vocal minority. They all answered. Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. 
they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood's on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we look at this story, God, I pray that we would see what's going on here. We would see your heart and the invitation to trust you when life goes off the rails. That we're not going to beat back evil. We're not going to reverse the curse through our own effort. We're not going to do that just by blindly following. But this is an invitation to meet a person. A person who trusted you so we now can experience new life. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Amen. Now, what in the world is going on here? Okay, so... I, w- I just want to point this out. I want to highlight this a little bit because some of you, I saw the looks on your faces, so we're going to just go back here. Uh, when I was reading, I think it's like verse 18. No, verse 16. If you don't, I'm reading from the NIV, and I, I know some of you aren't because I saw your faces. Like, what did he just say? Okay, verse 16. At, shout out how your version's different, whatever version you got. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Anything different in your Bible? It's just Barabbas. Okay, okay. I just, and just so you know, I'm not making this up. Anybody with an NIV can, can I get a witness? It does say Jesus on the page. Okay, all right. We're not making things up here. All right. Here's what's, there's a whole, we could spend too much of your, I've spent too much of my life trying to figure these things out. I don't want to spend too much of your life, but here's basically what happened. All right, so uh, very old manuscripts, like, so people copying the New Testament down wrote, Jesus Barabbas. And some folks were copying it, felt like that was irreverent, and so they're like, oh, let's just put Barabbas and we'll put a note on the side, Jesus. And then, fast forward 100 years, people are like, uh, we don't know which one is accurate. So it's about 50-50 if his name is Jesus or if his name is Barabbas. But Matthew's point is the same. He's trying to show us two different characters, two different options, two different choices when we are presented with Jesus. On the one hand, we have this character potentially named Jesus. Again, here's the thing. Jesus is not a super common name right now for in the circles I run in. Uh, It was wildly common back then, okay? It was essentially an Aramaic uh, translation of the name Joshua, okay? So just somebody named Joshua, which means God to the rescue, okay? So we have these two people called God to the rescue. Do you hear that? There's two options here. How is God going to rescue us? We're in exile, Rome, they're bad news bears, they're oppressing us, it's hard, it's awful. And we have these two would-be saviors. Also, Barabbas means son of a father in Aramaic. So we have Jesus who's walking around saying he's God's son. And then we have this other Jesus whose name is son of a father. And we're supposed to look at these two figures and say, okay, we're, we're starting to understand what's happening with the cross. How is God going to rescue us? Is he going to do it like, with our wisdom? When life goes off the rails, 
Fight back. Work harder. All right? Don't get stuck. Take no prisoners. Get a bullet journal. Like, get productivity apps. Work harder. So Rome is threatening us. Barabbas says, hey, let's rise up. And he's notorious. He's wildly popular. People like that. Now we have this other Jesus who's offering something different. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount. If your enemy slaps you on the right cheek, offer them the left. We're not going to fight back. And he's living that out, right? Remember verse 11, he goes to Pilate. He's not defending himself. He, so we have on the one hand, we've got self-preservation. When life goes off the rails, just work really hard to preserve yourself. On the other hand, we have a guy who's trusting God. He's not defending himself. He's not fighting back. And the invitation for Israel is to say, who are you going to follow? Which way are you going to pick? And here's what's wild. Pilate gives that choice to the crowd. We read that in verse 15. He had a, tra he had a tradition of releasing a prisoner every Passover. And so Pilate's like, all right, uh, you guys pick. He's playing politics. But what he doesn't realize is that God is in complete control and we all are going to be responsible for the decision that he just kicked into motion. What's happening with Barabbas? Well, Barabbas was an insurrectionist. John's gospel tells us he murdered a dude. Okay? He's already been tried and in the morning, because it's early in the morning that Jesus is on trial, he's going to be executed. Okay? And... His two compatriots, his co-workers, got arrested with him. They're going to be executed. I don't know if you know this, but like crucifixions took a little bit of preparation work. It wasn't like they just had like a cross factory that like they're like, all right, what do we got today? Okay, poof. They had to like do a little prep work. So they had the, the prep work's already been done. They've got three crosses, one for this guy Barabbas and two for his co-workers. Remember, in the other Gospels, or later in Matthew, it tells us Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. When I think of thieves, I think of like the McDonald's Hamburglar, okay? That's not who Jesus was crucified between. Thieves was a, a, a Roman aristocrat way of saying insurrectionist. It's kind of like, do you remember how they caught Al Capone? Wasn't it like postal fraud? Oh, it was tax evasion, right? We all know Al Capone, like, you know, yes, he didn't pay taxes, but he also did like way worse things. Same idea. Like, it's really hard to paint insurrection on you. You've got to get motive. So we're just going to call you robbers. And that's like code word. You're insurrectionists. Because also, being a thief wasn't a capital punishment. At worst, they'd like cut off your hand, which is bad. I'm not advocating for that. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't get executed. So here's the scene. Three crosses are prepared. Pilate is not, a Pilate is like, just think of an American Midwest politician, all right? He's back among his constituents. Whatever they say, he's just going to appease them and go back to Washington and do whatever he wants. And so he's faced, he doesn't know who these two Jesuses are. He's like, I don't know, I don't, I, this isn't my fight. I just don't want things to go bad. So what does he do? He kicks the responsibilities back to the crowd. He's playing politics. But what does Jesus do with this? See, it's so very important. It's so very important that we listen to and hear how the biblical authors talk about Jesus' death. 
There, there are places for this, but the biblical authors, crucifixion was wildly violent, and the biblical authors don't go into that violent detail, right? So, for example, look with me at verse 26. It says this, they released Barabbas, but they had Jesus flogged. Flogging is awful, okay? Like they would put iron on the end of whips and they would just rip people to the bone. Oftentimes it would kill them before they even get crucified. The biblical authors aren't interested in that. They're not trying to draw your attention to the violence that was suffered here. Also, this is what he says about Jesus being crucified. They handed him over to be crucified. Matthew is not trying to draw our attention to the horrors of crucifixion, though it's horrific. He's trying to draw our attention to what it is Jesus is trying to do and how he thinks of the cross. And what's happening? There's a guilty person who has a cross prepared for him. There's an innocent person who in a couple of hours will be hanging on that cross and the guilty person goes free. That is the heart of the Christian faith. Substitution. In my place, condemned he stood. Barabbas was a bad dude. He was a bad dude, and he, in Roman law, deserved what was coming to him. Jesus, the other son, was innocent. He did not deserve what was coming to him. But what happens? Look again with me at verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? You've said so. And when he was accused by the other chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. He is in complete control. No one takes his life. He lays it down. At the heart of the Christian faith is this idea of substitution. We deserved the injustice that Jesus took. Yes, we did. And now that we've been encountered, that we have encountered that, now that we've encountered what's happening on the cross, there are four responses. There are four responses to this amazing gift of grace. And the invitation for us, those of us who are watching, is what is this revealing in us? What's bubbling up to the surface? How will I respond? How have I responded? How am I responding? And there's four responses that we can have. The first one, the first response for following or, or being confronted with Jesus is found in verses 18 and 20. The first response, listen to what Pilate says. This is what he's talking about the religious leaders. For he, Pilate, knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Verse 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. The religious leaders, the people, these were Bible nerds extraordinaire. They, they kept Torah like you and I could only imagine. They should have been the closest to God. And how did they respond? Verse 18, Pilate knew they were working out of self-interest, envy. They were jealous. 
they were like, we're doing everything right. This guy's a rule breaker. He doesn't keep Sabbath. He's going around healing things. We confront him. He just does what he wants. We're doing right, and everybody loves this guy. That's the heart of the religious experience. That is Christless Christianity. Is Look at me. I obeyed. I give a lot of money. I have wisdom. I've been, I've been in church since before I was born. All right? I had nine months on all y'all. All right? Therefore, therefore, God should act a certain way. I have performed, I have performed, and now this isn't right. What's being revealed in this group? Who do they trust? Themselves. They trust their own righteousness. And when Jesus comes, the psalmist tells us when Messiah comes, he will be anointed with joy. Here's a guy running around. He's happy. People love him. He's calling himself God's son. And they can't stand it. That's the heart of religion. Self-righteousness. When we are encountered with Jesus, does our self-righteousness bubble to the surface? Listen, knowing Torah, being righteous, those are good things. Volunteering at church, giving money, caring for the poor, super good things. But is that what we trust? And look, you're like, yeah, I've been a Christian for forever. I don't ultimately trust that. We can start strong and just slide right back into this. And look, you don't, have to, you don't have to have ever darkened the door of a church to be religious. If 2020 taught us anything, all right, it's that like, well, look at those people with masks. I'm so much better than them. They're so stupid. They think masks do something. I'm so much better than them. Uh, I wear a mask. Self-righteousness kind of came to the surface a little bit in 2020, and it wasn't just religious folks. Self-righteousness. Righteousness. When we're confronted with this amazing substitution, with this amazing gift of love, do we respond with self-righteousness? This makes you feel bad. Therefore, it's bad because I'm good. There's another group of people here. Look at verse 20 with me, Matthew 27, 20. The second group of people. What are they doing? Well, it's the crowds. Matthew 27, verse 20. We're going to see how the second group here. The first group was we trusted ourselves. Here's the second group. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Why? This is verse 23. What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Pilate saw he was getting nowhere. He washed his hands. But what do they say in verse 25? All the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. Okay. I've never really been in a mob. Like I've been in some hairy situations, but never, I think, anything that could be classified as like a mob, okay? So I, I would imagine when you're a part of a mob, there's like kind of a couple different responses, right? So like, you know, somebody throws a brick, right? And then it just gets out of control. Everybody's grabbing bricks, ah, right? That's one option with a mob. What it sounds like here, though, is this whole mob, they spoke with one voice. They were deeply convinced this Jesus is bad news bears. Now think about this for a second. Think about this for a second. A week earlier, these people were praising Jesus. 
it's Palm Sunday, right? Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And now they're like, kill this guy. And in verse 25, maybe the most sobering verse in the Bible, they're like, his blood is on our hands and our children. You're like, are these people nuts? Maybe, I don't think so though, okay? Think about a mob again. Things can get out of hand, all right? Think about, think about the wildest mob you can imagine. Are those people saying like, kill my kids? And all of them saying that? It's possible. But is it also possible that they really legitimately believed Jesus was wrong? So look, their religious leaders, the scribes and the high priests are going around saying, yeah, this guy's bad. Messiahs don't get arrested. He got arrested. And I wonder if a proper reading of that could be like, hey, let his, we take responsibility. We own this. We want to be faithful to God. This is a false teacher. He got arrested. False teachers don't get arrested. They get blessing. So we want to be responsible. Yeah, his blood will be on us and our kids, okay? We take this really seriously. And the danger in that response is that these people, if they had done just a little bit of digging, may have come to a different conclusion. Now, how many of us do our own digging? All right? Matthew is a spiritual biography of Jesus. It's, it's kind of long. There's a sh- 28 chapters. There's a shorter one, Mark. You can read Mark's gospel, Mark's spiritual biography of Jesus, in about one and a half episodes of The Office. Okay? What's keeping you from doing your own digging? Do you just trust what everybody around you is saying about Jesus and his followers, or have you done your own digging? If the first response to Jesus was self-righteous religion, the second response of Jesus is similar. It's traditionalism. Again, nothing wrong with traditions. Traditions are fine, but traditionalism. We've always done it this way. We just trust. Did Look, we trust our, our high priests and our scribes. They're saying this. Let's go for it. They're saying he's false, but if they had been listening, they, if they had been listening to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, he says, hey, the scribes and the, the religious leaders, they're going to hand me over to be crucified. If they had been doing their own digging, they may have come to different conclusions. Now, the church in America has a sordid reputation, okay? Not here to paint a prettier picture. If your perception of Christianity is, oh yeah, those people, they're homophobes, they're xenophobes, they're always right, they're stuck up, they're not generous. I'm not here to argue, if that's been your experience, that there aren't people who claim the name of Jesus who act like that. And if you do a little bit of digging, you will find the center, the heartbeat of the Christian faith is this substitution that we follow a God who doesn't fight back. The temptation for him is to fight back. He doesn't bow to that. He had every opportunity. Pilate didn't want to kill him, and he doesn't say anything. He dies for his enemies. There's injustice all around him, and he takes the injustice on himself. That's the center. Start at the center and work your way out. The center of our Christian faith is a God who died for his enemies, not self-righteousness and not just blindly following, but a God who dies for his enemies. There's another response. There's self-righteousness, there's traditionalism, there's another response. 
It's in verse 19. Matthew is the only gospel writer who gives us the details of this story. In Matthew 27, 19, we meet this character, Pilate's wife. So while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now, think back. You've heard a very similar story to this, all right? Think Navidad, all right? We're going back to Christmas, okay? Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is born, and Matthew's gospel is all about he's king. The king is here. The king has come. He's born in Bethlehem. Why? That's the, that's the city of David. The new David's here. King, the king is here. And these magi show up, and they say, where is this one born king of the Jews? King. These Gentiles show up, and the religious leaders are not on the right side there. They're, oh, yeah. Uh, they tell Herod, hey, here's how you can destroy this guy. Again, not looking good for self-righteousness, Okay. But the Gentiles, those who were supposed to be far from God, are the ones responding in faith. And now, at the end of his life, a Gentile, Pilate's wife, is responding in faith. Those closest to God don't hear his word. Those who seem far away hear his word. Better to be the prostitute in the back of the church who loves Jesus than the self-righteous prude in the fourth row judging the prostitute. The response of this woman, she didn't, she didn't have to have anything to do with him. But in a dream, God spoke to her and said he's innocent. Innocent of what? Well, we know earlier in verse 11, they say you're the king of the Jews. And she's like, he's innocent. That's faith. Church history tells us that her name, hang on, hang on, her name, I hate iPads, by the way, was Claudia Procla. Her name was Claudia Procla, and church history tells us that she went on to be a disciple. And the Eastern Church actually canonized her as a saint. The gospel is good news for those of us who feel far from God. The hero of this story is the person the religious leaders would think would be the villain, Rome. Remember? Rome's a bad guy. What's, Bar what's uh, Barabbas trying to do? We're trying to overthrow Rome. What happens? Rome gets reached. Because <laughs> when we encounter Jesus, what we trust in bubbles to the surface, and we start to realize there's holes in it. And then what happens is we can either respond by going after Jesus, like the religious leaders. We can respond by, oh, I don't know. I just heard it on the radio. I don't know. Or we can respond in faith. Faith. When everything's flying off the rails, we can trust him because he is trustworthy. One more response. My man, Pilate. Now, it's easy to feel bad for him, and I do feel a little bit bad for him. I empathize with him. Pilate is kind of like he's at a basketball game, and he has to go to the bathroom, and on his way in the hallway, somebody grabs him and pulls him into a wrestling match, and he's like, I was just looking for the bathroom. This isn't my fight. I don't want to have anything to do with this. But again, when we encounter the resurrected Jesus... When we encounter what we trust bubbles to the surface. And we know that Pilate trusts politics. He's encountering this tough situation, right? There's no, there's no 
like popular way out. What does he do? Verse 15, he kicks the decision back to the people. Who do you guys decide? Can't be mad at me. I didn't make the decision. Some commentators think that he didn't even really know the prisoners involved. They're like, he's like, just grab Jesus. And they're like, okay. And so they grab these two Jesuses and he's like, Argh. he's trying to figure it out. He's trying to get off the hook. He's trying not to be responsible. He's trying, to, he's trying to do everything he can to be like, this isn't my party. I didn't ask for this. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting. Again, when we're encountering the real Jesus, what we trust in bubbles to the surface and we find out there's holes in it. He's trying to get political power. If you're trying to get political power, an uprising is not good news. Ah! So he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. Taking water and washing your hands is from Deuteronomy 7. It's not a Roman custom. It's a Jewish custom. He's trying to speak their language. Be like, I don't have anything to do with this. See, this is on you. That's what he says. I'm innocent of this man's blood. Why is he saying that? He knows this is a murder. If Jesus was really guilty, he'd be like, I don't want to kill him, but yeah, he's, he's a bad guy. What's he saying? I didn't have anything to do with this. That's what he says. It's your responsibility. This is on you guys. But the biblical authors, though, they give us a hint. They give us a hint as to whether or not Pilate's plan really worked. Look at verse 26. It's very subtle. Then he, Pilate, released Barnabas to them. The guilty one goes free. But he had Jesus flogged, and here it is, ready? Handed him over to be crucified. That word handed over is very big in Matthew's gospel. Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 10 that they will be handed over to the uh, scribes and the chief priests, and then they'll be handed over to the Gentiles to be killed just like me. And so Pilate, what does he do? He hands Jesus over. He still is responsible. This morning, you cannot run from your responsibility. The invitation, what do you trust? What's bubbling up to the surface? If you're like, oh, I just got dragged here. I'm like, I really don't, like, this ain't on me. Like, I, I, I'm just waiting, like, in like 25 minutes, you're going to be done, and I'm just going to be, I'm, we're going to beat the Baptist to the restaurants, and that's all I care about. I do not, I'm not here looking for trouble. I don't like trouble either, all right? But maybe you're like, okay, you know what, here's what I'll do. I'll think about what you're saying, and then, you know, I'll live my life, and then maybe at the end, we'll trust Jesus. I have a plan. I have a plan to trust Jesus. And that's lovely. I'm not in any way trying to knock that. I'm not going to do like the fundamentalist, like you could die on your way out. I'm not going to do that. But plans are a lot like airplanes circling a runway. Uh, eventually, they run out of gas. Pilot, for those of us who are trying to avoid Jesus, as we are encountered with this Savior who's offering himself as a gift of grace, as we're encountered with him. And we realize how we get through life when life falls off the rails is we avoid conflict and we're just like, make this go away. We, that is a decision in and of itself. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And perhaps Pilate's story is the most tragic of all. For these two crowds right here, there's irony in that 
uh, in 70 AD, they actually got their wish. When they said, let his blood be on us, in 70 AD, the Romans came in and they destroyed the temple. So they said, let it be on our children, and the, the kids would have been alive, 30 AD to 70 AD. Uh, they, got, they got what they asked for. Pilate's wife, she got what she asked for. She trusted Jesus. Pilate also got what he asked for. History tells us that Pilate's career, political career, fell apart. His closest ally in Rome died, and so he gets dragged in before Caesar, and he kills himself. What we trust in is revealed when we meet Jesus, and what we trust in has holes in it. But the invitation is to meet a Savior who willingly lays down his life for us makes this great exchange, a gift of amazing grace. And he had so many opportunities to bow out. And he did not bow. High school is hard for everybody, okay? Especially your senior year. You know, senior year, like right around the corner, there's uncertainty. you got to make new friends. Whether you go to the workforce, you go away to college. It's exciting, but it's also a little terrifying. But for the Chibok Government Secondary School for Girls, for the class of 2014, their senior year quickly became hell on earth. It was a Monday in 2014 when a radical group called Boko Haram came out of the bush and kidnapped in one day 300 young girls. Boko Haram uh, is a radical group, and they fill their numbers by kidnapping children and radicalizing them. Here's some of the girls that got kidnapped. Real people, real stories. And their life seemingly cut short. They're, headed, they're, they're in a part of Nigeria where literacy rates were low, and what most people think is that they were targeted because they were trying to learn and better their community. They hadn't done anything wrong, and now they're experiencing hell on earth. They've been kidnapped by terrorists. You might remember, uh, you know, parents didn't have any idea what to do, and so they chased after uh, the trucks with, on motorbikes and in cars, but then the trail runs cold, and then so someone in the community started a hashtag that went viral called Bring Back Our Girls. 300 girls missing, and it captures the attention of the world. Seven governments lend their agencies to try to find these young women, and for years, nothing happens. And what, like what happens on Twitter, we all just moved on until until what happened in 2016 when randomly I think it was about 21 girls just surfaced and then later May of the next year 81 girls surface again and about 100 of them are still unaccounted for and the media went crazy they're like this is amazing they survived and so the story was told look, look at how they survived but the story of how they survived was, was not told until two Washington Post journalists interviewed a lot of the girls and followed their story around. And what they found out was this was a Christian school. And the reason that these girls survived, it was inseparable from their faith in Jesus. They used 
They used survival techniques used by Holocaust survivors and by Nelson Mandela. They smuggled Bibles into the group and they buried them under trees. They had notebooks that they were supposed to be, they're being radicalized. They're supposed to take notes on how to be radical. And they would, from memory, as they got there, they're writing down passages of scripture. They wrote, they memorized parts of the book of Job. They, they wrote down, they really identified with Mary about the, the, the birth pains of having to walk by faith as you wait for the Messiah. And these girls were starving. And, and what was offered to them was, hey, we'll end your suffering if you just marry one of our soldiers. We'll give you food, we'll give you band-aids, we'll give you medicine, we'll get you out of this. You just need to, to adopt our creeds and join our ranks. 100 girls said no. And what they would do is at night, if they were caught singing, it was trouble. So they would sing into the ground with their hands cupped and their voices bouncing back into their face. And they would sing songs like, like the children of Israel, we will not bow. These girls are coming of age. Life had been stripped away from them. It fell off the rails but they followed their Savior. I've never, I, you know, I say things like, oh, I'm starving. After reading the story, I don't think that's going to be in my vocabulary. They, they told stories of watching their classmates. They could see an ant go by with a crumb, and they remember one girl killing the ant and eating the crumb. They were faced with unspeakable suffering and evil, and they would encourage each other at night by saying, be faithful. Be faithful. We will not bow. We are here today because he did not bow. It was injustice. It was flying at him and he took it for us. Thank you. We are alive because he embraced death. And he pushed back evil. He made a way when it seemed hopeless. And the question for us today is now that we have been encountered by this Savior, by this King, what is keeping us from trusting him with everything? Our careers, our kids, our grades, all good things. But what are we trusting in that's keeping us from this king? I'm not a used car salesman. I'm not up here to tell you, if you trust Jesus, here's how your life will be so much better. But a true king died, and the invitation is to surrender, to submit and experience that great substitution. Father, God, I pray whatever is keeping us from trusting you with all we have, that we would take that first step. God, even for those of us who've trusted you for many years, we just slide back into self-righteousness, traditionalism, trying to avoid making a decision. God, I pray that 
we would respond with open hands. That whatever, whatever we're faced with, you can be trusted. God, I pray that we trust you with everything we have. This sermon is part of the ministry of Compass Evangelical Free Church in Columbia, Missouri. We seek to be a church where Christ's love is at work transforming lives through the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. For more information, check out compassefc.com.